Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today I have the privilege of having a conversation with Dr. J. Matthew Pinson. Dr. Pinson is the president of Welch College in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a learned scholar, written a number of books, uh, and we're going to talk about some of his scholarship and some of his interests today. He's been a friend of mine and of Beeson Divinity School for a long time. So, Matthew, tell us about yourself, a little bit your background, how you came to faith in Christ. Well, I was raised in a Christian home, and I came to faith as a child. I don't exactly know uh, when that was, but uh, was raised by godly parents. And you know, who else doesn't know when they became a Christian was Billy Graham's wife, Ruth. <laughs> Ruth Bell Graham. She said she couldn't remember a time when she did not know Jesus and love Jesus. Yes, that's that's much like me. I was yeah. brought up in a home like that, and uh, we, we, we were in church, and I received the gospel through my, throughout my entire childhood. So where, where is your home? I'm from Pensacola, Florida, down on the sunny Gulf okay. Coast. Right. And now you're in Nashville, Tennessee, and you're the president of Welch College, which is an institution of higher education in the free will Baptist tradition. Yes. Tell us about the free will Baptist movement. Well, the free will Baptists came from the English General Baptists, which uh, originated in the 17th century in London. Uh, the first Baptist, as you know, was Thomas Helwes. And he's sort of our founding father. And uh, one of their great theologians was Thomas Grantham. And uh, several of those English General Baptists came over to the American colonies in the 1600s. And uh, many of our uh, ancestors came from North Carolina, where there was a man named Benjamin Laker, who was a signatory of the 1663 version of the old General Baptist Standard Confession, mm-hmm. which was delivered to King Charles II. And so Benjamin Laker is sort of our founding father. And uh, modern-day Free Will Baptists come from that stream, most of us. Uh, some other groups have kind of merged in, but most of the Free Will Baptists come from that stream and uh, essentially are English General Baptists who transplanted to the American colonies. Now, you mentioned Thomas Grantham. You've done some scholarly work on him, a very important figure. He ought to be better known than he is, I think, among Baptists today. Yes. Uh, but you've done some great work on Thomas Grantham. Tell us a little bit about him and what his theology was about, what he was trying to do. Thomas Grantham was a very learned Baptist theology teacher and preacher. Of course, they didn't have organized schools because the established church wouldn't allow them to back in the 17th century. But Grantham was a very learned man in a number of languages, and he was self-taught. He was a bivocational minister. He was a farmer and a tailor who learned a lot about God's Word and about theology and was the most respected General Baptist leader in the General Baptist uh, General Assembly in the 17th century. He wrote a book called Christianismus Primitivus, or Primitive Christianity, uh, which was a wide-ranging systematic theology book that uh, I would suppose is the, is the largest tome of systematic theology from any Baptist in the 17th century. You know, one word that describes the Baptist movement in general is vociferous. I've used that word a lot. It means splitting off in all different kinds of directions. One of the things I have always liked about Thomas Grantham is he was a person of deep conviction, but there was a kind of spirit about him, a 
tenor, a tone in his writings that reached out to other believers. Yes, you know, Grantham, in fact, that's one of the things that we like to foster at Welch. Uh, Grantham was an Arminian. He was a Baptist. He was very strong in his convictions and his confessional uh, commitments. And yet he was very uh, uh, ironic in the way that he uh, argued for those convictions. And he had a lot of friends. You know, he didn't allow his uh, his uh, conservative and his uh, very uh, particular um, uh, convictions theologically and confessionally to determine who he hung around with. Yeah. <laughs> so he had a lot of, uh, you know, he had Anglicans that would, would say good things about him. And, he you know, John Bunyan was a friend. And, and he had a lot of particular Baptists, that is, five-point Calvinist Baptists, who would endorse his books and... He was very uh, ironic and and uh, charitable in the way he went about polemics in the in the church. You know, I see a little of Grantham in you, well, because thank you. I mean, you're a friend to a person like me, <laughs> and that's remarkable. Well, you're because, easy to be a friend of, Doctor George. <laughs> well, we have our differences. I, I want to talk to you about uh, you know your work on Arminianism. I mean, uh, you you've talked about the general Baptist tradition of which the Free Will Baptist movement is a somewhat later uh, expression, they're called general because of the idea of general atonement, the idea that Christ died indiscriminately for all persons. That was a Helwes idea. It was a Grantham idea. And that's often associated with Arminianism. But the word Arminianism has taken on different kinds of connotations throughout history. It isn't simply theological. But you openly embrace Arminian. In fact, you have a book, Arminian and Baptist. It's a wonderful book. Say a little bit about Arminianism as you experience it, as you see it lived out in the Free Will Baptist movement, how we ought to think about Arminianism. Well, you know, Arminianism is basically a commitment to a libertarian freedom understanding of, of, of human agency. And so God gives people uh, basic creaturely freedom. Uh, that means that they can do things that they might have otherwise chosen differently to do. And uh, so that's maybe why we're called free will Baptists. It's not because we believe that everybody has uh, a natural ability to seek after God or to, to desire the things of God. You know, we believe that everyone is dead in trespasses and sins, and uh, everyone needs the work of the Spirit uh, convicting and drawing uh, him or her to, to faith. And, uh, and yet we believe that somehow, mysteriously, the Holy Spirit is doing that in the world uh, in, in, uh, across humanity because Christ died for everyone and he wants everyone to be saved. And so he's doing that. You know, um, but a lot of people have the misconception that Arminianism exalts the love of God over the holiness of God and that Arminianism is more man-centered than it is centered on God and his glory and his justice. And one of the things that... Uh, that we're kind of doing down at Welch uh, is is fostering a movement that is really it, it it comes it dates all the way back to Helwes and Grantham and of course Arminius. It's it's a little bit different from most Arminianism today. Of course, a lot of Arminianism today is really more kind of Finneyism. Mm. It's more like Charles Finney, and it's even a little bit more kind of works righteousness oriented and legalistic than even even Wesley would have been. But our movement's kind of different from Wesleyanism. And uh, our approach to theology is much more comfortable with the Reformed tradition. 
and with you know as Baptists understand that tradition, we're much more comfortable with the way that Reformed people see what it means to be uh, a person who is a Christian. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be saved? Uh, so I would say that our difference uh, with with Reformed theology or with Calvinism, if you will, is more about how you get to be saved, mm-hmm. how you come into a state of grace. Mm-hmm. But what it means to be in a state of grace, we are joyfully in line with uh, the Reformed tradition on what it means to be in a state of grace, and what it means to be saved, what it means to be justified, what that means in the life of the church. And so the five solas of the Reformation are things that we exult in and we love. And uh, I recently was telling one of my students that uh, when you look at Arminius, he is living in this seventh, in the 16th century and early 17th century world in Dutch Calvinism and D- the Dutch Reformed uh, movement that is a lot broader uh, in terms of the way they define Reformed. And, uh, uh, you, you know, the, the, the Reformed have the three forms of unity the Belgic Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort. Well, the Canons of Dort come several decades after the Belgic Confession and mm-hmm. Heidelberg Catechism. And they're, as you know, a lot stronger in their affirmation of predestination mm-hmm. and what we might call determinism, sort of a soft, mm-hmm. compatibilist determin- determinism maybe. But they're a lot stronger in their ca- in their soteriological Calvinism, a lot stronger in their approach to predestination and to, to, to God's coordination of all things and so forth. And yet, when you go back to the Belgian Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, you could have all these pastors and lay people and, and uh, political leaders who were proud members of Reformed churches who proudly signed their names to the Belgian Confession of Faith and Heidelberg Catechism, which Arminius again and again you know, handed out copies of and loved and subscribed to and bragged on. And yet they were not predestinarians in the sense that, say, Calvin was or Beza, mm-hmm. and the sense that would become instantiated in the uh, canons of Dort. Yeah. You might say that in, in, in the, for kind of a funny way I put it, in the late 16th century and the early 17th century, you had a young, restless, and reformed movement <laughs> <laughs> on the continent in, in the reformed churches. I, I think I think a harder, stronger Calvinism was always probably the mainstream speculative theology of of the reformed movement on the continent. And there was a time when, as you're saying, there was a greater fraternity. I yeah, mean, sure. Arminius himself was ordained in Geneva under yes. Beza's ministry, so. There was, they were on speaking terms. They were. And, and, you know, and the the interesting thing about it is that Arminius saw a real beauty in Reformed theology. Uh, Arminius, and it wasn't just the soteriology. A lot of times today when we think of Reformed theology, we think of the five points of Calvinism. Of course, my friend Carl Truman would say that's not what Reformed theology is. And he would say that neither you or I are Reformed. True. Because (laughs) they're interpreting it even ecclesiologically in terms of paedo-baptism. And Presbyterian church order, yes, which neither you nor I accept. But, you know, the interesting thing is that Reformed theology in the 16th century is broader. And so Arminius can say, you know, I love the kingdom covenantal uh, eschatology of, of the Reformed movement. He can say, you know, I believe that man is totally depraved and that depravity has a noetic effect, an effect on his yeah. reasoning capabilities. 
And uh, I believe that we're so sinful that we can't even determine how to order and structure the church. And we need Scripture, all-sufficient Scripture to help us. So, you know, there are a lot of these non-salvation-oriented or non-soteriological-oriented parts of Reformed theology that Arminius just naturally loved and extolled. And so we're kind of like that, you know, in, in, in our approach. You know, Arminius died in the year 1609. The following year was the Remonstrance. And for the next 10 years, really, uh, throughout uh, the, the Dutch Republic, there was this raging controversy that ended up at the Synod of Dort in 1618, 1619. I've often wondered, historians shouldn't ask what-if questions, but I've often wondered, what if Arminius had lived for 10 more years? Would that controversy have been so polarized as it became? I don't know. Um, we can't answer that question, but I think he did embody that broader spirit that you've been talking about. Yes, it's it's hard to do alternative history, like you say, but uh, one wonders if, with Arminius's irenic spirit, if uh, if things at the Synod of Dort may have ended up a little bit broader mm-hmm. in terms of the way they framed Reformed theology and who was in and who was out. I want to ask you about another one of your books. It's a fascinating book. I've recommended this book to a lot of people because it's one of the few books I know that deal with this particular issue. It's called The Washing of the Saints' Feet. Now, will you talk about feet washing and why that is an important part of the free will tradition and what you're trying to do in that book? Yes, well, you know, the, the, sometimes uh, sort of in the churches, you know, down, especially down in the south where Southern Baptists are sort of, you know, uh, ubiquitous, uh, free will Baptists will get asked, well, what, what makes y'all different from us Southern Baptists? And uh, often people will say, well, FW, free will and feet washing. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's kind of a little handy term that some people use. But in some ways, when you look at the broad sort of uh, Baptist, once saved, always saved sort of uh, uh, tradition, that would be the two main things that distinguishes, uh, distinguish the free will Baptists from most Baptists, would be for, uh, our approach to Arminianism, and then, of course, the right of the washing of the saints' feet. And uh, I grew up washing the saints' feet, and uh, I grew up with it as a... Uh, as, as a ritual that we would observe along with the Eucharist. It was interesting. My wife, uh, I met my wife at Yale, and she is a member. She grew up as a member of the United Church of Christ. When I met her, she had the United Church of Christ worship book. It's a very mainline Protestant denomination, and it's got this detailed rite of washing of the saints' feet. <laughs> and, you know, there are other, and I began to look, and it was interesting how many of the mainline Protestants at Yale uh, either had washed feet or when I would talk about it, they would say, oh, cool. You know, <laughs> whereas some of my evangelical uh, compatriots, they weren't as impressed with it, you know. But if you go back uh, to early Baptists, you know, a lot of Baptists washed feet. Sure. Some of the strongest Calvinist Baptists in the 19th yeah. century yeah. Were, uh, were strong on the washing of the saints' feet. Uh, I think Dag kind of put an end to that. Dag, Dag, there was a growing emphasis on feet washing in the 19th century among among confessional Calvinists in the Baptist tradition, and Dag really saw it as a difficulty. And so he uh, wrote some things that that kind of discouraged Southern Baptists from engaging in this ritual. But we actually believe it is uh, it is an ordinance of the gospel that Jesus has appointed or instituted 
for his church and for the as a means of grace for for his for his people. When you read John 13, it sure seems that way, doesn't it? it does. I mean, Jesus gives pretty clear instructions about that. And it has been a part of the church's tradition in different ways. You know, the Pope in Rome on Monday, Thursday, washes the feet of 12 beggars who've been chosen as representative, I think, of the people of Rome. Uh, I've participated in feet washing myself at uh, the Church of the Brethren. Yes. It's another church for which it's a very holy and sacred ordinance. So would you place feet washing on the level of baptism and the Lord's Supper as something Jesus commanded us to do and we ought to do? We have, that's what we believe, and we've historically done that all the way back to the 17th century. We're a lot like Anabaptists. You mentioned the Brethren. They are an Anabaptist group. And when you go back to the Waterlanders, you know, uh, John Smith and Thomas Hill was, uh, were exiled from England in the first decade of the 17th century, and they uh, began to maintain fellowship with the Waterlander Mennonites. Of course, John Smith became a Mennonite. Mm-hmm. Helwes couldn't hack it, and so he went back to England and said, I'm not becoming a Mennonite. But one of the things they got from the Mennonites was this emphasis on feet washing. I believe that that was mm-hmm. one of the things that the Anabaptist tradition did influence the early Baptists. And as I, as I said, many Calvinist Baptists also practiced this. But, yeah, I think we would say that uh, it, it isn't really clear. I mean, how do you begin to say which of God's ordinances are more important and less important. I don't know that, that Jesus or the apostles really get into that issue. Mm-hmm. We tend to define ordinance more like it's defined in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, the Westminster, Con- uh, or maybe it's the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says, you know, what what are the what are the ordinary and outward and ordinary means of grace? And it says the word, sacraments, and prayer. Together with all of the ordinances Christ has appointed. Yes. Something of that nature. I think that's a paraphrase. But we would tend to view ordinances much in that older Puritan way. And that's the way Baptists tended to use ordinance in that early period. as something God ordains as a means of grace for his people. And so, you know, they would, the Puritans would talk about the ordinance of psalm singing and the ordinance of almsgiving and the ordinance of the ministry of the word, the preaching of the word. It's kind of hard to start categorizing those things. You know, is singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs a less important ordinance than, say, preaching? Or is the ordinance of almsgiving? I think we can start talking about what needs to be more central in the life of the church or in the worship of the church. But it's kind of debatable. It's, it's hard to see in Scripture a sort of gradation of the importance of the ritual practices that God has appointed. Mm-hmm. And, and this so, is done usually, you mentioned, in terms of uh, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Yes, So that's right. describe, take us through a service of feet washing in, with a Eucharist in a free will Baptist church. What would we see? How, how would we experience that? In most free will Baptist churches, you are going to have a service of the Lord's Supper. And uh, most of the congregations I have been involved in, it is much more of a sacred uh, reverence sort of feel than you have in a lot of evangelical churches when it comes to the Lord's Supper. It's not just sort of like a passing of the offering plate. It's a, it's it's kind of a hallowed, very sacred, uh, uh, reverent kind of feel. Um, and a lot of times that that transcends you know sort of uh, worship style. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this there's this sense of, of of real awe and wonder and transcendence in that service. And then after that service. 
then the the women will usually go to one room and the men will go to another room or go to to one side of the of the sanctuary or another side or they will divide and if it's a larger church they will have several uh, gatherings and and they will simply there will simply be a basin of water and a towel and some of the more traditional churches much like the Mennonites have these long towels that they will actually gird themselves with and they'll wrap them around their waists and then uh, one individual will kneel and uh, take the basin and and remove the other person's sand uh, sandals, uh, socks and shoes, and uh, will wash his or her feet. And then most of the time, the person who washed your feet, who, whose feet you wash, will wash your feet. Mm-hmm. And it's usually a very uh, a very hallowed time, a reverent time. Often, song will break out. Just about every well, uh, service of the washing of the saints' feet that I have been involved in, uh, spontaneous hymn singing will break out mm. in the service. Many times uh, you see uh, real reconciliation between mm. brothers and sisters who may have have uh, experienced some, some tension between them. Mm. So it can be a very beautiful uh, community-building uh, ritual. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. J. Matthew Pinson, he is the president of Welch College in Nashville, Tennessee. That's a wonderful school affiliated with the Free Will Baptist Association of Churches. He's a scholar of this movement and of uh, theology itself, uh, holds degrees from West Florida, University of West Florida, Yale University, and Florida State University, and also a doctorate in higher education leadership from Vanderbilt University. He's a well-educated person, but also a person of great faith and a leader in the Lord's Church. He's a friend of mine, and I'm honored to know him and to learn from him. We've been talking today in particular about his books, two books, Arminian and Baptist, and also another wonderful book, which I, I was pleased to recommend, The Washing of the Saints' Feet. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Dr. George. It sure has been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.